G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. So after doing a lot of research, um, I discovered that self-storage and mobile home park are recession-resistant. And so I decided on self-storage because I, I'm not a fan of having to deal with people and their living situations. I don't want to be God and decide who gets to stay or not because they're in the financial trouble. <laughs> so uh, that's why I decided on self-storage. It's a lot easier to manage and, uh, and a lot easier to get started as well. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. 
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Stephanie Borini. Stephanie is a principal at Monte Carlo Investments located in the Bay Area in California. Stephanie, like myself, is originally from Brazil. So she's an expat and she moved to the United States way back when she was 18 years of age. And she moved here in order to chase a dream. Earlier in her career, she founded a marketplace focused on natural, organic, and non-toxic products. And since then, she's gone on to win many or multiple awards, I should say, as a sales leader and very successful multi-billion dollar startups in the Bay Area. Now, given her background in raising venture capital from startups, Stephanie has now decided to pivot from that raising tech startup world into raising money from those techies for real estate investments, specifically self-storage. And so we're going to talk to Stephanie about all the benefits of raising money or how she's pivoted in her business from raising money for startups to now raising money for commercial real estate. I'm really excited to and pumped to have her on the show today, but enough out of me. Let's get her out here. G'day, Stephanie. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you so much, Reese. Appreciate you having me here. My pleasure. A um, little bit offline before we press record here, I was trying to pronounce your last name. And uh, do you want to give the, the audience how you actually pronounce it properly? <laughs> Boldrini in Brazilian, Bo- in, in Brazil. <laughs> Bo- Boldrini, I was trying to pronounce it sounding like an idiot. So, but all those listened out there, my I'm botching it with my Australian accent, but uh, I gave it a good, good. go. <laughs> um, Stephanie, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Let's rewind the clock. I ask this question to all my guests when they come on the show. Tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Sure. And just before that, I just want to clarify, I did not raise money for startups. I worked ah. at startups um, in the sales got area. So got it, got it. just so everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first dollar, I don't remember. I don't think I have ever made money when I was a kid. However, as soon as we moved to the United States of America. Thank God miracles do happen. My mom showed me the sign now hiring and she explained what that meant. (laughs) And so we started, my sisters and I started working for the first basic job uh, back then at Mervyn's. And uh, I was so excited to get my $147 first check and (laughs) just continue working hard from there. Awesome. And tell us a little bit about that transition from Brazil to the United States and, and why your family moved here. Yes, uh, we moved here because my mom met her soulmate and best friend. And uh, he was crazy enough to bring four women and two dogs to the United States. And it all worked out for everybody. They're still married 20 years That's later awesome. and very happy. Yes. That's awesome. So stepdad, right? Is that yes, right? Exactly. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So tell me about how that transition was as an 18 year old coming from Brazil. I'm sure a huge cultural shock, like you just explained how maybe kids or teenagers, I don't know if they work necessarily or get first jobs in in Brazil compared to maybe the Western world where it's, you know, as you're 15 years of age, every, every sort of teenager is like, let's get out and earn my first dollar and, you know, make some money at a cafe. What's the sort of cultural differences that you notice when you first moved to the United States? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I remember the the mindset of, oh, I'm here, I'm getting paid to work. And so I'm working during the time that I'm here. And uh, my second job was at block the now defunct Blockbuster. <laughs> and uh, I remember this American girl was there and she was just flipping magazines. <laughs> and I was thinking, wow, we are here getting paid, so we should just work and somehow because of apparently because of that attitude i got promoted within a month (laughs) and continued growing from there 
Um, so, you know, just if you are getting paid in our culture, at least you do the best that you can and you're always thriving and, and continue improving based on that. I think most people are, or most cultures, when you get paid to swap time for money, you're, you're gonna, you have to do something, right? You can't just sit around <laughs> and flip in magazines. But, yeah. uh, but, but tell me how you made the transition or you know, your background in going into startup, the startup world in, in Silicon Valley. Yes. So I was uh, working in sales. Oh, so I did my, own, my first and own startup uh, about 10 years ago. It was a very humbling and incredible experience as uh, entrepreneurs out there know how uh, the entrepreneur life is. I like to say that it's like getting two MBAs for a much cheaper price. Um, <laughs> my startup did not work out. However, it was an incredible learning experience and I highly recommend everyone doing it. Well, let's, uh, I'm going to jump in. Let's, let's talk about it. What, what was it? How did you, what did you learn? Because sure. did you have a formal background before getting involved in starting your first startup? Uh, my background was just living here in Silicon Valley and experiencing what, everyone is doing which is building companies left and right and so i was really inspired by that um, some things that i learned during my three years working 24 7 on that was were number one do a research if you like something it doesn't mean that the entire world <laughs> wants that as well uh, our product was a marketplace for natural organic non-toxic products and uh, back then it was green products, what we were focusing on. But after doing research, I found out that people really didn't care about green. They cared more about their health first, even though all the products were the same. The other two, uh, the second thing that I learned was to focus. Uh, Amazon launched books when they started as a company. And uh, <laughs> we opened up to every single category under the sun and nobody remembered us for anything. We should have opened up only for skincare products and grown from there. Um, and uh, that was our best selling category. And then number three, we were charging very little to our sellers per transaction. So we should have charged more in order to have better numbers for our potential investors. So those were the top three things that we learned. I, I, first and foremost, I applaud you because probably 10 years ago, maybe it was, but maybe not as sexy as it is now, green products or healthcare products, but it's really on the tip of everyone's tongue. Like everywhere you go, it's organic this, organic that, skincare product this, skincare product that. It's mm -hmm. natural. It's not no nothing produced from animals, not tested on animals, like all these things. Um, but, but really cool that you figured out that you needed to focus and that sort of your trick, uh, what is it? A trick of all trades, but a master of none, right? You went out yeah, there and exactly. you sort of was, was scattered and you didn't focus because that old adage of you want to be an inch, uh, an inch wide, but a mile deep in terms of knowledge. And, and mm -hmm. so I think that's really incredible. And then not understanding your value, right? Because you're saying, well, I'm only charging my sellers a little bit of money because you don't want to offend them. And, and I don't know if that's a cultural thing, but I think that mm -hmm. like with any first business, it's your baby, right? And you want to you want to like do well and you want to please the sellers. So you're not yes. going to charge them too much. And it's all of that pleasing, but sometimes it's a little bit got to be cutthroat than that. It's like, screw you. I know what this yeah. is worth. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to charge you accordingly. That's it's very incredible 
first experience into the, the business world. What um what ended up happening? Like so so you, you just fizzled out. You didn't make any money. What what, what what's the sort of story there? Sure. Yes. Um, unfortunately, we could not raise any funds, so we had to shut down and move forward. <laughs> and what? Tell me, that must have been a pretty hard pill to swallow. That first, when you the realization. Um, I I made it not be. Uh, it was okay. It was, it was okay. okay. So yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't your. But you could let that baby go and move on to the next thing. Yeah, because we can always go back to it and we have learned so much. And so it, it, it's really all a matter of the experience and mm-hmm. maybe taking five years off, getting back into the work world and coming back for a much better startup. So Right, right. Getting a little bit mind- more, more experience, right? Like commercial yeah. experience in, in terms of the real, the real world because I think reflecting on what you did badly in your mind is that sort of it will help you lay the foundations for the next be- the next su- successful company so, so 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 tell me what happened next where'd you pivot to after that so then i started looking for jobs uh, i saw that this tech company was hiring for quite a few jobs and i said i want to work there <laughs> <laughs> and so somehow i managed to get myself in there at the lower level uh, position that i was looking at you know, starting However, I said, no problem, let me prove it to you guys. And then within eight months, I had the position that I was initially targeting. And uh, it was a really incredible experience. Um, That startup showed me that team is 100% important. Every single person there was incredible and we would all work together again. And today they're worth $8 billion in the stock market. Um, so you can tell when, when a startup is going to succeed, because if every, if the experience of hiring from scheduling the interview all the way to being there and working with an amazing team is flawless, I have no doubt that they will eventually make it. What, what product was it or what company is it? Uh, It's called MongoDB. It's a database. Okay. For engineers, so it, awesome. it was a basically it's a, a free product <laughs> that we had to sell support for at the time. Now they have more enterprise features for the and, product. And I can hear in yourself that you you very much seem like a person that can you want something you'll go out and achieve it regardless of how you're going to get to it, right? And, and so how did you knowing because I when I first moved to the United States, I, I was a structural engineer and I I, I had a university degree, but I was getting shut down online in terms of my resume because I wasn't educated in the United States. Mm-hmm. Had, I'm sure you would have faced some very similar things trying to chase down jobs. Yeah, I was literally, I remember crying in my room because I couldn't get a job at LinkedIn, a really good job that I wanted. <laughs> um, and so what I did, I just looked at my network and uh, someone that I knew, knew someone that worked there. So that got my resume up. Uh, in the stack. So that, mm. that really helped. Awesome. So network, you, network, did, 80% of the jobs are found through your network. Right. And, and isn't yeah. it so true that so many people have self doubt when they look at these, re- they look at these jobs online and they think I, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified enough. It's like 99% of jobs, you fake it till you make it. And it's not even fake it till you make it. You just fi- you're just going <laughs> to figure it out and, and sort of fake yeah. it till you make it. I don't think that's the right word. It's you yeah. have the mental capacity to bring on knowledge 
and then go out and figure out what the hell I need to do to put <laughs> to get the job done, right? And and, yeah. and that's that's the grit, right? That's the grit within entrepreneurs. And I and I love how you were just able to say, well, I want a job at LinkedIn. Well, I need to figure out a way to get there, regardless of education or background. It's just like I just I know I wanted that job. So mm-hmm. so that's awesome. So how long were you? At, is it MongoDB? Is that what you said? Yes, I was how, there for how, three years. Three years, right? Yes. And then what? What was the change in your mind to go out and now start raising capital for for commercial multifamily or commercial real estate, I should say? Sure. So uh, again, being in tech and living in Silicon Valley, you do get very interested in startups. So I wanted to start learning about angel investing and I decided to uh, invest in a handful of startups as an angel investor. However, shortly after that, I already lost (laughs) one startup was already dead. Um, and I had a friend who was a real estate investor for over 20 years. And, uh, after talking to him, uh, for long periods of time, it was very clear that real estate is the best form of investment compared, at least compared to angel investing with the least amount of risks and the best return. Right. And tell me about what are sort of statistics these days on angel investing? Because I know in Silicon Valley, everyone's looking for the next hot Google or LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram. Mm -hmm. So is it like a 10 to 1 ratio? You invest in 10, one will go well? If that, uh, (laughs) I'd say that 95% of them fail. Uh The problem is that, um, number one, you need to do this full time. You really need to know what you are doing. Number two, you get diluted significantly. So unless you have the capital to invest again when that startup grows and gets more money from venture capitalists, you're going to get significantly diluted. And the venture capitalists, when they come for a Series C, which is the third round of investment, they they set their own terms Mm. and they basically say, we are going to get paid first, no matter what. So the angel investor who put all the risk in the early days (laughs) when the startup was nothing, he could very well be out of the game uh, significantly by the time that the company exits. It's it's really like um, mes mes debt or mes equity, however you want to talk about it in re, in real estate. The you know, you've got your debt, you've got then a piece that sits just after the debt, and they get paid first, and right they're they're the ones who eat first when any profits. And then you know the GP, we talk about LPs and GPs on this show a lot. Um, in angel in angel investing, it's it's you're essentially the GP, right? You're you're lumped up with the uh, with the owners and co-founders, but yet you might just be, hey, like I was just helping my buddy out get his startup off the ground, and now I'm lumped in with them. I'm not going to get any money until these these folks over here get their eleven or twelve percent or whatever it is. And yeah. as you said, they set their own bloody terms, so it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I an example. I met someone who has been running a an angel investor group from Berkeley. Uh, and he has been running it for 10 years. And I said, so he invested in about 50 startups. And I said, similar to what I ask all my Vegas gamblers, are you on the positive or the negative? (laughs) So 10 years later, 50 startups later, he was still in the negative. Wow. (laughs) 10 years later, 50 startups still negative. Where's he getting his money from? With the Berkeley network. 
Right. Where's he getting his money from to keep going? Like, Oh, he's an attorney, so he's getting it from okay, us. Got it, got it, got it, got it. So he's yeah. got a day job and he just keeps the, yeah. the, ex- the excess cash goes into yeah. startups. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, it's a very interesting statistic because I, I haven't had too many people on the show talking about those types of statistics because I, know, I now want to dive into obviously the commercial side, commercial real estate side. Given that you've had that one foot in the startup angel investing and you, you know we all have heard and read stories and you know particularly how the economy is going with these really really in my opinion inflated valuations for these companies that if you compare those same valuations to a, a multifamily or a, or, or a self storage if you don't have cash flow or you don't have an, a net operating income you know you're, that's what you're valued on and so these you know like Ubers of the world and uh, and WeWork just recently like they. They're valued at these huge prices, but they have no, they're otherwise rubbish, right? Compared to what their value is. And so, do you want to talk a little bit about that phenomenon, given that you now know the other side of the coin in terms of how we value real estate? What's your perspective on that in terms of this over massive valuations in these companies? That's a very good question, Reed. I actually, this was actually my last tweet. Uh, <laughs> Salesforce just uh, recorded $109 million loss, and wow. they are worth $136 billion. Explain that to me. Just, just explain <laughs> it to me. I, I, I'm not an economist. I don't know how these things work, but what? I'm also looking for explanations. <laughs> I said, in my country, you're broke if that's the case. So (laughs) please, somebody tell me how they're worth $136 billion. Do you you actually know, like given that you're living and breathing in Silicon Valley there, do you you know how any of this sort of stuff works? Like, do you, have you spoken to venture capitalists and say, well, how do you, what? Like scratching. Yeah. Future numbers. They're looking at the numbers. I think this is incredibly overvalued. I think something's about to explode very soon. Mm. Nobody's mm. making money. Even MongoDB, they are losing 100 and something million dollars per year as well. So at some point, where where is the money going to come from if you right. don't turn into a profit? Right. So- and so, well, and here's the question, right? Is It's more to do with these venture capitalists act like the bank, right? Mm-hmm. But they're willing to have the keys back, so to speak, foreclosed upon when I, I'm a startup, it's not working, I'm losing $1.9 yeah. million a year, I can't make the debt payments, which is your essentially your, your promissory note at 11, 12, 13%, whatever it is, the, the company's going, thanks, thanks a lot. So it's very interesting that on the other side of the coin, you look back at 2008, when the same phenomenon happened, when these how ninja loans were going out and that's what caused the crash so it's very interesting and i think you're right the tech is in a massive bubble right now and and if you're a betting person gal or guy um i think it's going to be coming coming down the pike very soon and it's it's the stock market seems to be going really well and we're having all these great words on the economy and trump's tweeting out all these bloody things about how good the economy is but what's the underlying these tech startups and valuations, because it seems like every man and their dog wants to start a tech company, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, the reality is that um, there are only a handful of venture capitalists that are actually positive. Hmm. Most of them are not making money and it does take 10, 10 years or more in order to show some kind of return. So a lot of people are, <laughs> they're, they're still under those 10 years mm. and uh, they're still raising capital for their next round. So 
That's crazy. And it's all yeah. on future projections, like you said, the, the hockey oh, stick yeah. curve, the J oh, yeah. curve, you know, <laughs> go yeah. straight up. <laughs> Uber, all of it. We work. Yep. I mean, SoftBank is writing off we work. I, I don't I don't know what SoftBank's uh, bank's numbers are, but uh, they are well, they just selling took over, other didn't shares they? as well. Sorry? They just they just took over on the board of directors or something like that. I read somewhere yeah. they, they 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 kicked out the founder and and all his family. Yes, <laughs> and said we're taking yes. over because we need to restructure. You know, so it's very it's very interesting. And I don't, to me, I don't know if that's the canary in in the coal mine. Um, uh, not sure. So I'm not I'm not an expert on that. But it's definitely very interesting. Keep watch this space, guys who who are listening out there. So Stephanie, tell me about the the transition into multifamily. You've had these 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 many years, these decades in the startup world. Why you you had a mentor? You you came you came across someone who was very into the commercial multi uh, the commercial real estate space. Why did you want to change? Uh, I like working for myself uh, wherever I want. <laughs> So that was the main driver and also the returns, the least amount of risks and also the government writes the taxes and in a way that they want you to behave and that favors real estate significantly. So for tax reasons as well. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now back into the show. So just just all all, all the same reasons we all invest in real estate, for, yeah. right? It's, <laughs> exactly. Unlike unlike a startup where you got to develop assets, where in mm-hmm. real estate you have an asset from day one, where other than in a, in a startup you have you got to might go te- develop a tech startup like the oh, sorry a, a develop a tech asset like um, how Uber owns the technology that connects us with the driver, right? That's their asset. Uh, unfortunately, WeWork was trying to develop that. But they haven't. They didn't get. They didn't get that quite there quite yet, and then went to IPO a little bit too quickly. But you know, for another day. So tell me about how you're talking to these angel investors and, and pitching these guys and attracting that capital from that side of the world into real estate, commercial real estate. Sure. So it turns out that a lot of them uh, don't know a lot of the benefits of real estate. And so they're all there paying their taxes. <laughs> and uh, so talking about taxes, talking about immediate re- returns for this year and not in 10 years from now, um, and really saying, explaining that 200,000 investment in, in real estate can buy you a million dollars worth of property. $200,000 uh, in the stock market is going to get you $200,000 worth of shares. So just explaining in detail all of these reasons, as well as why it's important to invest in certain asset classes today, like self-storage, in my opinion, um, uh, are very helpful. And have you had any pushback, you know, like just complete blank stares when people talk when you talk about the tax benefits when they're so used to investing in startups uh, sometimes yes <laughs> <laughs> you just need to connect them to the right advisor uh, so if you know I'm not able to explain all the details so you just connecting them to the right tax advisor uh, does 
but from really but from a high level point of view, you can sort of explain the overall cost exactly. segregation or exactly. you know, appreciating of a of a physical asset over time. Exactly. You know, it's it's very interesting because having those conversations, it's it's a great way to set up a business that you can, given your experience in having both sides of the coin or both feet in in either areas, uh, you can start attracting money over. So you mentioned self storage. Why, in your opinion, do you think self storage is such a great um, asset class right now? Yes. So after doing a lot of research, um, I discovered that self-storage and mobile home park are recession resistant. And so I decided on self-storage because I, I'm not a fan of having to deal with people and their living situations. I don't want to be God and decide who gets to stay or not because they're in the financial trouble. <laughs> so uh, that's why I decided on self-storage. It's a lot easier to manage and uh, and a lot easier to get started as well. And so have you successfully executed or you're partnering with people in order to go out and find deals now? Yes, I have a couple of LOIs. I had a property in contract. Unfortunately, their numbers were not <laughs> the right numbers um, in terms of revenue. And then also partnering up with a couple of operators Got in the self-storage world. And moment. is that... Is that how you see yourself as a co-sponsor, co-GP, being that sort of venture capital for the real estate side and, and, and partnering with good operators? Yes. As, as all entrepreneurs know, we can't get anywhere alone. So mm -hmm. partnerships are very important. So yes. And, and whereabouts are you, are you looking or you're hunting right now for, for, for certain deals? I'm sorry, what was the question? Uh, where, where are you hunting? Where are you going? Where are you looking for deals right now? Um, what, what are your markets? Oh, I have quite a few MSAs actually that my mentor passed over to me. So they're in Texas, Florida. Um, it's quite a few cities uh, within the US, about 50. So, <laughs> Wow. Yes. Wow. And are you going to focus more on just a handful rather than being, you know, that that old adage of when you started your first yeah, company, exactly. you're, you're, you're a, a master of all trade, but a trick of none. Sorry, a trick of all trades, but a master yes. of none. Yes. Uh, because I know that in my own business, because I, I buy multifamily, we're in two, mm -hmm. maybe three MSAs, mm -hmm. but we're seeing deals coming to market before anyone else seeing deals coming to market. In Austin, Texas, we are. Mm -hmm. um, so... Have you got to that point where you think you need to whittle it down and double down on on a couple of areas so you you are the that that the go to person the, first, the the top of mind when people think for for self storage and who's going to buy um, you know yeah, Stephanie's going to come and buy some self storage real estate from us. Yes, we're definitely focusing on a couple of MSCs and already have relationships with brokers in those uh, cities. Awesome. So yes, awesome. What what where what do you like right now? Dallas area is great. And um, Florida is doing really well. Uh, I love Nashville. However, <laughs> there are no deals in Nashville at the moment. And, and, and what, what do you look for when you're looking at an MSA? Oh, and maybe and we'll, let's go, let's go 30,000 foot level and then mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll whittle it down to specifically for self-storage. Sure. So, 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 so why Dallas? What, what, what makes Dallas awesome for self-storage? Sure. So the typical, the typical uh, demographics, right? So employment growth, population growth, uh, differentiated industries within a city, um, uh, politics, <laughs> not California, for example, because it's incredibly difficult to deal uh, with anything here if you're a business owner or even in real estate. So all of these things, uh, I believe, are, are just part of 
discovering your MSA mm-hmm. and um, looking sometimes in near bar, near, nearby markets near these uh, MSAs. So within 20, 20 minute drive from Dallas, for example, is also part of where we look at. And then from, from a more granular point of view, are you looking at, because I know I've studied a few, um, uh, um, uh, not PPMs, but sort of investment summaries, investment memorandums uh, related to self-storage. And they talk mm-hmm. a lot about like drive-by traffic. Um, what's, can you give us some metrics and what do you type, what do you look at like in terms of, you know, square foot of house, you know, single family houses in the area yeah. need X amount of uh, self-storage. Like, and, and then do you look for other, if other self-storage operators are in the space? Exactly. So you look at uh, the availability of self-storage per capita in that mm-hmm. area. And, and what's what's a typical rule of thumb that you would use on, you're going to a new MSA, it's a, over a million people. What would you like to see availability per capita be? Um, it depends on the MSA. I'd say around six more or less. So that's, just explain six what six, six square foot per, per capita. Uh, of self-storage. Of self-storage per capita, Correct. right? Yes. Got it. I, Got it. Yeah. Six square foot. No, no, it's, it's interesting because it's it's always thinking about those sort of things. People don't, you know, when I look at multifamily, it's certain, we look at certain things in terms of school districts and average median incomes and all that sort of stuff. But on the self-storage side, you've got to look at what what the average per capita or the average square foot per capita is in that particular MSA. Um, and it's, you're saying six a good medi- middle of the road type of number, right? Uh, correct. But yeah. <laughs> we would say yes for the time <laughs> being. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, and with, with all the self-storage um, that's going on, what are you looking for in terms of, like, give me that example of that LOI that fell through why did it why did it fall through because just it wasn't reporting what you thought and thus could you have got it to what you think it could have you know performed at no it was simply a matter of numbers the owners said that they were making x but in fact they could only prove that they were making 50 percent of that wow so (laughs) and everything was cash and check and they could not prove anything else so we had to get out of contract how many how many self-storage units were was it it was, I think, 175 or so. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. And then in terms of the vacancy and all that sort of stuff, what do you look for in, a, in an area to make sure that you are buying? Like, how do you know if it's not just an underperforming asset or, it, it, you know, you could get it to an optimal occupancy that, that, that would be supported by the surrounding area? So, um I'm sorry, what was the... So, so the, the, the question is more to do with like in multifamily, like the average, you want to get an occupancy up to about 90%, 95%. That's yeah. got, you know, most MSAs. And if you see something that's sort of 60 or 70%, you think, wow, something's going wrong with the property management. I could come in here and, you know, do, do a better job. On the self-storage side, what is that number? So you want to get to ideally 90% occupancy at when you come in and you add the value that you're adding mm-hmm. is not the case when you're purchasing. You want to make sure that the, the, that the rents are below market and that you can decrease costs. So those are the top two things that so I rent, personally look at. So, so rents below market, you can increase costs and you're looking at a vacancy that is roughly in around 90%, right? 
sorry, not vacancy. You want to get to 90%. So occupancy, 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 yes. occupancy, occupancy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, occupancy. You got me, you got me, uh, got me all muddled up here. Um, yeah. So it's really, it's really incredible because also I've interviewed a lot of other people on the show about the self-storage and the different ways in which you can go and add value. So what are the specifically ways that you go look for adding value at a self-storage? In multifamily, it's obviously renovating the units. Mm-hmm. In self-storage, what are you, what are you doing? Yep. So besides cutting costs and increasing rents, you can, depending on the type of building that it is, if it's, for example, not all non-climate controlled, you can have a kiosk there Mm -hmm. and not have any employees on site. Um, You can add value by putting more signage, by um, running Google ads and being more technologically savvy, which (laughs) a lot of people are not. (laughs) And is the average self-storage investor, we'll call them operator, are they using a third-party property manager to to oversee the company, oversee the asset, or are they doing it themselves? Oh yeah, most of them have someone else. So have someone else. Got it. So, mm-hmm. so there is there are nationwide opera, um, property management companies that specifically focus on self-storage, right? Yes. Yes. Got it. And, and you can they- also hire your own. You can also hire your own, right? Yes. Are they borrowing a lot of the techn- technologies and techniques from multifamily in terms of how to get, we call it heads and beds in multifamily, but it's sort of, I guess, I don't know what it would be called in self-storage, but like, um, art, you know, junk in the trunk, I guess, is, you know, in terms of getting people's <laughs> stuff in to, in, into a, a shed, <laughs> which is what it is. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know much about the multifamily market to compare, <laughs> but... Um... But in terms of techniques, like you spoke about Google ads, like yes. if you're looking to get, you know, increase leads, you're going to go on uh, Craigslist, you're going to go on Google ads, you're going to go on, um, you know, posting and you're going to put in like um, or geofencing in and around mm-hmm. other self-storage mm-hmm. or geofencing in and around maybe um, U-Haul centers because those U-Haul centers are going to be people who may want to, you know, and, and so when, they, when their phone goes through that fence, it ticks them off and all of a sudden they start seeing advertising from a local self-storage place. Like, hey, oh, oh, I can see, I can see, I can go start renting a self-storage place rather than having to move my stuff in and out of my garage all the time. So, yes. Yeah, te- te- techniques like that. Yeah, in fact, if you uh, have a contract and partnership with uh, U-Haul, for example, to have your, their trucks there, that's another way to add value and bring people in and they see, oh, self-storage is right here. Right. Might as well bring the U-Haul truck back with all my things and and stay here. Awesome. But yeah, there are all kinds of techniques as, as you can imagine of marketing and right. putting signs out. Uh, 50% of them actually come from the signs on the road with self-storage. Which is really important why being on a major thoroughfare or highway is important because you have that mm-hmm. natural, well not natural, but just the inherent inbuilt advertising ploy that can just slap up a sign and you're getting a thousand cars driving past every every day or whatever it might be to keep them advertising keep them front of mind so so awesome stuff so stephanie what what's what's the future got hold for you right now what are you what are your plans coming into the end of 2019 what's 2020 got in store yes 2020 the goal is to have continue building on the self-storage world and uh, partner up finalize the partnerships with operators and build build a self-storage <laughs> World Empire. potentially, potentially also help some partners in the mobile home park uh, raise their funds as well, and also purchase a couple of uh, self storage properties. 
Awesome. And are you any sort of interest of bringing Brazilian capital to the United States? I know I'm bringing some Australian capital to 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 America to to invest here in multifamily. What any opportunities to go to go back home and uh, say, hey, look at what you, look what we're doing up here. <laughs> Remember the focus. <laughs> <laughs> There well, are opportunities no, just, everywhere at this there, point. There's opportunities no. everywhere. <laughs> at this point, no. Got it, got it, got it. I no, do have a just, friend who is in real estate and she's Chinese and she has a lot of uh, connections in China. So that could be a potential um, partnership there. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Well, look, I wish you all the best. And I do want to be very conscious of our time today here on the show. But at the end of every show, um, I'm getting into the top five investing tips. You ready to dive into it? Ready. All right. Tell me, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? A Google Calendar and my mm. tasks. Do you use anything specifically, like a, an app or anything like that? I use HubSpot. I started using HubSpot recently just for the task uh, purpose. That's T- the only to-do thing. To-do list. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Who's the most influential person in your career to date? Wow. Most influential person. Um, probably my mentor. Okay. Yeah. Did that mentor get a name (laughs) or are they secret mentor? Yeah. Secret mentor. Secret mentor. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Tap tap the nose. Secret mentor. All right. Secret mentor. You're the most influential, you're the most influential person (laughs) in Stephanie's career. Um, what is the most influential tool in your business? Given that you're in the tech world, I'm sure it's a software, but I've asked this, I asked this question to every one of my guests and it could be also a physical tool like a phone or it could be, you know, their, their analyst. I've had someone say that their analyst is their most influential tool. But what's your most influential tool in your business today? Does it have to be a software? Or no, can it, can it, be, be? it can be anything you want it to be. Just a tool that you use daily to help you be successful. Uh, I took a course called Landmark and Mm -hmm. that has been transformational in many levels in my life. Landmark, what is that? (laughs) Tell me more, I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) It's a self-development course. Um, Uh Just a little background. I took Tony Robbins a few years ago and it was amazing for two weeks. Mm -hmm. It all faded. However, with this one, you get it and you get it for life. And it has transformed my personal life, my professional life. I highly recommend everyone in the planet to take it. Now, Landmark is the company that puts yes. out this, this 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 training stuff? Yeah, it's called the Landmark Forum. Landmark Forum, got it. Yes. Okay, I'll have to check it out. And you use it daily, it sounds like. <laughs> it has become part of me, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> awesome, yes. awesome. Well, I definitely have to check that out. Landmarkforum.com, is it? Uh, I believe it's landmarkworldwide.com. Landmark they have offices everywhere. Got it. Got it. All right. Uh, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure to date and what did you learn from that failure? <laughs> After taking Landmark, there is no failure. <laughs> but I would say my startup in the human context. <laughs> in the human context. My got startup. It. And what, yeah. what, what would be the number one thing that you could point to in failure? I know you, you mentioned yeah. some at the beginning of the show, but yeah. looking back, what, what, would, what would be the number one? Focus. Focus. Number one. Got yeah. it. One, one word. One word. One word. <laughs> Not even a sentence. It's just focus. Yeah. Just focus. <laughs> well, Stephanie, uh, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere a little bit. They want to tap into your angel network investors. Where do they go? 
Sure. Our website is montecarlorei.com. And we also have a podcast called Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z. This is only for commercial, no residential, no multifamily, just commercial if anyone is interested. Got it. Awesome stuff. Well, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the podcast today. Uh, some of the takeaway tips that I learned from you is just, I think, your ability to go out and, and grind. And I love what you said at the beginning that doing a startup is the equivalent of doing two MBAs. And I can 100% vouch for that. I know starting this business, I didn't do an MBA. I didn't go to school for an MBA. Mm-hmm. I went to school for structural engineering. I, but I've figured it out and it's it's that sort of that the school of, of hard knocks, so to speak, the school of the street, a university of life <laughs> that people go and excel at. And, and it's about making those failures and those mistakes until you can learn from them to go out and be more successful. Uh, I really think your ability to see something and go out and achieve it regardless of what that that, that is. And I th- really think that's the expat type of being not from this country having that grit under your nails to go out and make it happen and so i really applaud you for all that you have achieved and i think you're going to have an incredible future ahead of you um but but did i leave anything out no i just wanted to thank you so much for having me this has been a lot of fun and yes in this country anyone can be anything that they dream of so (laughs) go for it awesome stuff exactly either the world is your oyster well uh stephanie thanks again so much uh enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very very soon thank you reed appreciate it well there you have it another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice and just really life advice from stephanie about how she's come to this country no formal education but just went out there and absolutely smashed it but learning a lot of things along the way and i think those those lessons have set her up for success moving forward into pivoting into commercial real estate specifically in self-storage and i wish her all the best and definitely go out and check out her web uh, her website and her podcast uh, and all the links from today's show will be up on my show notes as well so we'll link back to stephanie's show and blog um, i want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to tune in to this show because we're all about increasing your financial IQ and we're going to do it all again next week so be bold be brave and remember go give life 